This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Measured Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here's your host, David Reebstein. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Measure Thoughts on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Dave Reepstein, professor of marketing here at the Wharton School, and I'm joined in studio by my co-host and Ph.D. candidate of the Marketing and Business Ethics Departments here at the Wharton School, Sunil Betty. Welcome, Sunil. Glad to have you here. Glad to be here again. Our program is live every Monday at 4 p.m. We're on Sirius XM, channel 132. We're repeated several times throughout the week. And today we have a very special guest. And the guest that we have is Stephen DiOrio, who happens to be somebody that I met at a MASB meeting. Mm-hmm. I'll explain MASB in a little bit. For sure. He is the director of Forbes Marketing Accountability Institute. Excellent. And so we're going to have to figure out exactly what that is. So we're going to do that in the first segment of the program. In the second segment of the program, we're going to open up the lines to anything that they want to ask. Um, and we'll be talking about marketing, anything to do with accountability, marketing mm-hmm. metrics, mm-hmm. brand, thinking about the value of a brand. Yep. And anything marketing-related, let us know. You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at biz, B-I-Z, radio, 132. But without further ado, let me... Turn to Stephen DiOrio. Stephen, glad to have you with us. Hey, thanks for having me on, David. I will say I had the pleasure of meeting you at the last um, MASB board meeting, MASB being the Marketing Accountability Standards Board. And, um, and I thought the meeting was very, very interesting, but one of the highlights for me uh, aside from the agenda, was having a chance to meet you. And it seems like you are so front and center in everything that I care about. So that was that was a real pleasure. Well, thanks so much. So uh, let me let our guest hear what your background is. And I will confess, while we talked about a lot of things that are related to marketing and accountability and trying to figure out how much money companies should be spending and how they should allocate their spending – we didn't get a chance to go into much of your background. So what is your background? Well, uh, like most people, it was a strange journey. So I'm actually a trained engineer. I grew up with GE. And I guess around you know, 30 years ago, I got asked the question for one of my projects uh, to um, you know, optimize marketing. Take a look at go-to-market. You know, Is this money going somewhere? Do a process analysis on it. And you know, lo and behold, 25 years later, you know, a couple of books, uh, I've become a de facto expert in how marketing creates value, uh, sales enablement, marketing effectiveness. So kind of an unintended journey. Um, and what arrived, how I arrived at Forbes was, you know, Forbes is evolving as a brand uh, in the media space. Uh, and one of their most important audiences is CMOs. Forbes has a lot of brand credibility with, with, with senior executives. They have a premier CMO summit. They've got, you know, a, they've, they've got permission to have a conversation with CMOs. And Forbes asked me, what can we do to help double down on CMOs, address their biggest needs, which it turns out is pr- 
improving the contribution of marketing to the business. So um, we've launched about two years ago the Forbes Marketing Accountability Initiative, uh, and very quickly uh, I discovered MASB, who you referenced, the Marketing Accountability Standards Board. That's, uh, that's probably the premier think tank and standard-setting body in the area of marketing accountability. Uh, we joined forces and created you know, um, the Forbes Marketing Accountability Initiative, powered by MASB. And I think, you, as you saw, uh, we have pretty robust conversations between practicing marketers, leading academics, and sort of the folks at the vanguard of the measurement field from you know, Nielsen to the Media Ratings Council. Uh, so, you know, that's how I wound up here. Uh, to be frank, when, when they asked me to look at this notion of marketing accountability, I thought it was a bit of a fool's errand. But as I started to unpack it, uh, it's actually, as, you, as I think you mentioned at dinner, you know, emerging as, as a seminal issue in business. So I, I, that's the backstory on me. So, so it's an interesting one going from GE to this uh, this sort of institute there at uh, at Forbes. You know, I'm trying to think about Forbes and what I know about Forbes, and think when I think of Forbes, I don't know about you, Sunil, but when I think about Forbes, I think about Forbes magazine. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I wasn't really aware of Forbes having this great connection with uh, CMOs. Do they have the same thing with CFOs and CIOs, et cetera? Yeah. So. So what they've done is they've built franchises. Uh, we have the CMO Summit, but yes, within you know within ag tech, uh, within the wealth community, uh, they're starting to host conversations uh, with executives in forums, in in in, in research, uh, in peer connections, and 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 drill down on those things. Obviously, a lot of these things are anchored by lists. We have the Forbes most influential CMOs. We have the Forbes most valuable brands underpinning what we do. Uh, but certainly, you know, in a world where, you know, uh, media is fragmenting, Forbes is trying to, uh, you know, double down on their relationships with the most senior business invest, uh, business executives. So, yeah, they've got a number of franchises they're developing. I think I think the marketing one is probably the one they've pushed the farthest. You know, I started this executive program here that was titled uh, Linking Marketing Metrics to Financial Consequences. And what I found really interesting was there was a whole collection of marketers that were involved and would come to the program, but also uh, an, a number of CFOs and, and other directors of finance that would come. I'm thinking about you know Forbes possibly playing a critical role in sort of bringing those two groups together rather than holding them separately. Uh, do you envision any of that happening? You know, you've, you've got to – I've talked to hundreds of CMOs since I started this. And certainly, you know, there's an analytics revolution going on, and digital is supposed to be throwing so much data. I view this as more of a communications problem than a quantification problem. And you've really gotten at something there. You know, coming out of GE, you know, I was a Six Sigma guy. I did TQM. You know, I have a finance degree from Chicago. And so we can throw around words like EBITDA, and nobody will question it. But when we say words like market share or lift, you know, the, the janitor can come out of the closet and has a point of view. Everybody's an expert in marketing. Uh, and we lack the precision and the vocabulary to really communicate. And so I think to your broader point, this is more about communication between finance people and marketing people than it is really about measurement and KPIs. Uh, that's, my, that's my experience. And, you know, of course, people want models with quantification down to eight decimal places. But the reality is when 
folks start talking the language of finance, uh, all of a sudden the scales fall from people's eyes, and they can agree on things that they would argue about, like you know the, the importance of brand preference uh, and the role of long-term marketing investment. So, so I think so, you, know, so you make let, an interesting Steve, point there. Stephen, let me push back just a little bit on that before you go too far, which is that I think some of it is a communication issue, but ultimately a large part of the communication of the firm centers on cash flow or more particularly on ROI. And I think there are some terms that marketers use that aren't understood very well through the organization, so we do need to work on that communication. But are are you saying that marketers are able to talk about the ROI of their spending? You know, you've got at the core of it. You know, this is not, you know, Venus and Mars, tell me about your feelings. We're talking about communicating the value of marketing in terms of predicting future cash flow. I think you've just nailed it. ROI is a very subjective term. I'm sure you can pull out all the papers on MROI and whether ROI is a valid measure. Uh, What you have to do, and I think the whole focus of what I've found after a lot of failed efforts here is to make everything – uh, in terms of the value to the business, which means predicting future cash flows. So you're dead on. There is an equation. It is not a simple equation to translate marketing investment, whether you talk about it the media or promotional activities uh, or other types of investment, into predictable future cash flows. And that is a multi-step equation. I think that's one of the things we've learned. Uh, you just don't go from Super Bowl ad to stock price. Uh, you have to. Right. There's a lot of steps in the middle. Uh, in addition, the language has to be really precise. And ultimately, if it doesn't translate to cash flow, you haven't connected with finance. So perhaps I oversimplified when I uh, called it a communication problem. You know, more of it is if you can explain marketing in financial terms, uh, you can get on the same page very quickly. Uh, and, and, and the math is not that easy, quite frankly. Right. And uh, that, that's for sure. So why is it that it's so hard to account for marketing? What is it that makes that so difficult? That um, I mean, one of the things you said is it's multi-step. But, uh, you know, well, well, I, 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 need, I need you to unpack that for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, so that, that, that's an important one. So, you know, in the world today, attribution, the bottom line is to me, is the big thing. Everyone's talking about, can you attribute a marketing investment, whether it's a TV ad to a billboard, to a, an actual sales outcome? Uh, and yes, with digital, obviously we can. Obviously, we were talking about, uh, you know, Black Friday uh, or Cyber Monday. In e-commerce, you know, people say they can attribute marketing directly to a transaction, and that's true. No, 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 no. no, 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 I'm not saying it's true. Can I build on it? The the problem is it's flawed. You can jump in there. I'm going to say it's flawed. Attribution is the lowest form of ROI, and and it's flawed because it's got short-term bias and other things. Why don't you dive in here? But but I was going to point out that attribution and even multi-touch attribution are flawed, and that gets to my point of it being a multi-step process. But why do you? So, so let uh, me. I, I will jump in and tell you why I, I I had to sort of interrupt you in the middle of that, which is first of all, let's talk about what a- attribution is. Somebody ends up buying something, 
And the question is, what do we attribute that to? And the reason we care about that is the marketer has to decide, I'm going to spend some money on some advertising. I'm going to spend some money on R&D to improve my product. I'm going to spend some money on distribution, promotion, whatever. And somebody ends up buying something. And we say, well, what drove that purchase? Was it because of the money that was spent in R&D, which is rarely ever considered in the attribution you know, uh, array of things to consider. Was it the ad that they saw online? Was it the television ad that they had? Was it the years of the branding efforts that were going on? What do we attribute it to? Because if I knew what that was, I would know to spend more money on that. But we don't necessarily know what that attribution is. And I interrupted you when you said, Online, when somebody, you know, I place a banner ad, somebody clicks on it, and then they end up buying, I can attribute it to that banner ad. But the only reason they clicked on that banner ad is all the years of previous advertising and the previous experience they had with the product and experiences others had with that. So I I say there's this multiplicity of things that really contributed to it. Do you agree? Oh, absolutely. And I think this is where why this initiative is so big. We, we do eight-hour workshops. We're having one on December 6th where we dig into this. This is, this is non-trivial. So let's unpack what you said. I misspoke. I did not mean you can attribute online. I mean you can measure online. And we often measure what is easy, what is right, not important. Right. So the, 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 brand, the brand equity, the customer loyalty, product innovation, the digital experience, those are all long-term capital investments that may be, in fact, the reason why that transaction is happening. And in a simple attribution model, uh, that won't be reflected. They'll just say, well, the search term or the content on the web page did all the heavy lifting, when in fact, you know, it could be millions of dollars of R&D that did it in product innovation. So these are legitimate debates. The other aspect that's wrong with this is effectiveness. I think, you know, I don't know the audience, but, but you know, you know the difference between, uh, you know, a revenue elasticity and, and maybe a value elasticity. You know, I know that if I drop price $5 on Black Friday, I can move demand. Uh, right. But that's not right. necessarily helping my future cash flow. That may be destroying my brand equity. That may be destroying my my margins sure. Sure. Uh, in an irreparable way. So just because I can drive revenue doesn't mean I'm creating value. In fact, you know, in the case of promotion, in general, uh, price decreases destroy value more value than they create. So uh, that's another aspect of the problem, and and I think that's why this equation is multi-step and a lot more complex than, than people uh, make it out to be. So I, I think you're just starting to pull on a thread here that shows all the flaws with, with attribution and last-touch last attribution. Stephen, you may not know the audience, but the audience is getting to know you. This is, uh, uh, this is Measured Thoughts on Sirius XM 132, and we're currently speaking with Stephen DiOrio, who is the director of the Forbes Marketing Accountability Institute, and you can give us a call at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. You know, as you're describing it, uh, Stephen, I'm listening to it and listening to what I was saying and saying this is a very difficult, if not an unsolvable, problem. There's so many things that are going on, and I don't want to believe it's unsolvable because we do want to get to the answer <laughs> to this. Um, and I spend so much of my career trying to figure out, you know, how how to unravel this. But it's so complex. Do you think we're ever going to be able to to do the marketing accountability? 
Well, I told you at the beginning, when, when Forbes first asked me to do this, I said it's the ultimate fool's errand. Right. But I do believe we can solve much of the problem. And when I overstated that it's more of a communication problem than it is a quantification problem, I think under, what I've observed with finance, uh, the CEO, and marketing in the room, if they understand the equation and they understand the basic math, they can identify things they all agree upon and make decisions without the level of precision that people would imply with the with these models. Uh, I'll give you an example. I was with a big uh, tool company, uh, and they were having the fight that you and I just had, which is they were spending too much money on promotion. They didn't want to do that. They were the premium brand in the market. They felt it would destroy their margins. What turned out was that the channel people uh, understood this, and they were raiding the promotional budget in form to use it to buy shelf space, uh, which was an asset uh, that they had invested in building and owning for years, which they understood everybody in the room was really what was driving their volume. Uh, and if they had to raid the promo budget to build that asset and to support that asset, you know, in terms of the shelf space, everybody agreed. So they had a budgeting and an accounting and a communication problem that says I'm spending the money in ways that are bad. But when they found out what the people were actually doing, virtually everybody in the room had a belief system and hard experience. These are 25-year veterans that says, no, shelf space has value. Owning premium shelf space is what is driving our volume and our margins, and I'm willing to invest against that. So that is an example where that budget got approved. Uh, they even increased that budget, and everybody was on the same page. And it was an example where folks didn't have a vocabulary to describe how the actual tactics and budgets translated to what they were trying to accomplish. So while I think you're right, it's perhaps impossible to perfectly forecast and model all the ways marketing creates value, it is relatively easy to gain an understanding that good decisions or at least good bets are being made. Um, that's the other aspect of this, where you know, if we have at least a framework, we can start to apply the scientific method. A lot of budgets get approved on gut feel or biases or beliefs that are unsubstantiated. Uh, I'd rather have a bet or a guess on the wall uh, than, than an unspoken bias, because there, if I'm wrong, at least I can adjust. So there's lots of value to having this math while you, know, you could make a solid argument that we will never solve this problem. And sure. that's why I'm so big on this notion of communication and shared understanding of what we're trying to accomplish, because I, I believe in the 80-20 rule. I think that makes sense. Uh, I think that this notion of, of communication, Stephen, uh, makes a lot of sense. I guess I have a, a gating question, which is, you know, a lot of, whether it's CMOs, CEOs, CFOs, aren't communicating. Uh, they're a siloed in their own, you know, departments. So how do you at Forbes and when you're thinking about, you know, your involvement and, you know, when you're thinking about MASB, you're thinking about all these different organizations, how are you actually encouraging that conversation, right? It's not just having the conversation and being on the same page, but you got to bring the people in the room together and let them understand that, you know, one adds value in a different ways. So how do you even, how do you gate that question before you even get to, you know, communication? Well, I think that's great. So, and by the way, we have a research agenda, and we have uh, a research framework where we uh, aggregate all known academic research, and it's surprising how much of this stuff is known, uh, as well as develop new research to advance these things. So we have 
probably a three-legged stool. One, we have a framework and a value chain for articulating value. We've literally got 18 ways that marketing or marketing-related variables can create stock price. They're, they're empirical, they're causal, uh, and, and, and those are the only things we look at. Uh, and, and those 18 things include a lot of the stuff you talked about, uh, a digital customer experience, perceptions of product innovation, uh, loyalty, brand preference, uh, but also marketing effectiveness. So we do have buckets. Uh, is, it, is it your people? Uh, is it, is, is it, is it um, service quality? Uh, so we have 18 variables. We also have a value chain that says actions and investments drive those value drivers, which change behavior and create business outcomes that can lead to cash flow. So we have two basic frameworks to host this conversation. The second aspect of it is, is we take an interdisciplinary approach. When we work with teams and we bring in people, we'll have a mix of analytics people, marketing people, and finance people. That's good. And That's we great. like to have all three of those voices in, in the room. Uh, and I believe, uh, you know, if you believe the simplest uh, principles of crowdsourcing, if you had a finance person and a channel person and a retail person and an ad person, uh, and a marketing person look at a campaign, and everybody had an opinion. We have we have studies that show this. The aggregate performance of those campaigns, as measured by Romy, return on marketing investment, goes up and up and up. Just having different sets of eyeballs looking at the same problem improves performance. So our belief is the conversation has to span those silos. Nominally, you know, marketing operations, mm -hmm. the analytics people have the data. Uh, the marketing people have the know-how, and the finance people have the bottom-line orientation. And just getting those three or four voices in the conversation changes things. And this is where Forbes really adds value. Forbes has permission as a brand to host a check-your-gun-at-the-door conversation where you can get into pretty good detail on these issues. So in forums like, like, like you and I met in in August, uh, the one we're hosting on December 6th, we actually are going to have very senior people from those disciplines digging into the questions you and I are discussing here at an incredibly high level of detail. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's amazing, it's amazing how much progress you can make. Uh, also, we pair people up. Once people have zeroed in on an issue uh, you know, about attribution, about how to measure different variables, we pair them up with other people who are wrestling with the same issue, issue often out of industry, but sometimes in issue, industry. And I think you've seen... You know, we have academics who have years of experience to, to shed on these things. So, so the whole notion of multidisciplinary approach uh, with rigorous frameworks that at least end with cash flow so that, that we're always look, shooting at the right North Star, uh, you know, with, with collaborative forums where people can really roll up their sleeves. I, I think we're moving the needle with that. It's not perfect. You know, we do some benchmarking and some other things, but that's really the ingredients of why I think Forbes might be effective in this area. So when you pair them up, you're pairing one chief marketing officer with another chief marketing officer. Are you also pairing chief marketing officers with their finance counterpart? Exactly. So mm -hmm. I, I like to think of it as Match.com, the dating site right. for, for marketers. So rather than say, hey, David, you know, you're an academic. I met this, this, this guy or gal over at uh, University of Chicago. I think you should meet your both teachers. Uh, we do more of a dating quiz and say, David, you're really struggling with how to understand this value elasticity of the customer experience. There's a fellow or a gal over here 
who is really wrestling with that as well, they've learned some things and they stubbed their toe. You guys should talk. Now you're talking about... You know, no, I want to be matched up with the one who knows the answer, not somebody else who's struggling, <laughs> right? But certainly, certainly, you know, uh, certainly as well. Uh, and I think, I think it's that level of specificity um, that really makes the difference. Uh, and it's amazing how quickly you can get there. And, and that's where I think the real value is, because everybody's got a unique situation and everyone has something to share. So, you know, what I've been thinking about is in this era of big data and uh, and marketing analytics um, and, and people buying online, like you were referring to earlier, sh- shouldn't we have this this whole thing figured out by now or at least a lot, you know, not with a sharp pencil, but a lot closer to what's really going on? Have, have things gotten better with all the data or is it just added more noise into the whole system? You, you know, it, it, that constantly vexes me, David. And, and you think, I think it's almost the opposite. Uh, I'll give you two examples. Uh, everybody knows that digital means more data. And the promise of digital advertising, you know, is that I have, at least with a digital ad, you know, good and perfect information. We're running a session on this whole notion of digital transparency. You know, the FBI is investigating the ad agencies. And what we're learning, just looking at the basic facts, is if you spend a dollar on digital advertising, it's not clear whether 50% of the dollars are actually making it to eyeballs or 20%, uh, and certainly not 100%. So explain explain that, because you and I talked about that in in August, but I want to make sure that everyone understands that. I think when I spend a a dollar on digital advertising, that it's because it's being seen. Is that not right? Yeah, well, so there's this value chain. So I, I used to run the supply chain programs at GE. You know, I'd have, I'd, we'd be making refrigerators and there'd be a supply chain. Uh, and, and the same thing applies to, to marketing and the discipline works. So when you place an ad with your agency, they go to a trading desk who then goes to a DSP, which goes to a buy side platform and goes through all these layers of marketing technology to eventually be placed on the right screen in the right context. There's about 12 fundamental middlemen in there. Each one of them are taking their tax. Ideally, those middlemen, just like in retail, are adding value, but it's not, it's not exactly clear. But what happens is the middlemen take at least 45% of that dollar. Whoa. Hopefully, and then on top of that, when you add in fraud and viewability and robots and things like that, you could be losing 80 cents on a dollar wow. uh, in terms of marketing. And nobody really understands. I don't think I have the answer, but I've asked the questions, and nobody really understands how much of the power is actually making it to the wheels, to use a terrible automotive analogy. I cut you off, David. Please, no, that, no that's, that's frightening to hear. Before we go any further, I again want to remind our audience, you're listening to Measured Thoughts on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. You can give us a call at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And we're currently speaking to the Stephen DiOrio, who is the director of Forbes Marketing Accountability Institute. A shocking thing that Stephen just said was that when you spend money on digital marketing, you're not necessarily reaching the people. It's all going to the middlemen in between. Let me just ask, what's the comparable when I spend on, on traditional marketing? You know, um, I'm glad. You know our good friend Tony Pace. I know him well. Masby. You know, I can't get the hard numbers, but it's closer to 95 or 100% for television and things like that, as, at least as, as I understand. So, you know, just, and, to be, just to be clear, because we've stated in two different mm-hmm. directions, 
a dollar spent uh, for for digital, only twenty percent of it actually is reaching somewhere eyeballs. Somewhere between somewhere between fifty, 50 and twenty percent. A good number is fifty. A bad number is twenty. And in traditional, meaning television ag- uh, advertising, magazines, etc., a dollar a, a dollar spent it, it's ninety percent or so. So the, the, you're the, you're talking about more than twice as much reach that mm-hmm. you end up getting on traditional. Well, it gets to the oxymoron. We have digital. It should be more accountable. And, and in one sense, it isn't. The, the old stuff, we complained about TV, but the money's, we at least agree the money's working. Here we think digital panacea and unintended consequences are not. Half the money, we don't know where it's going. So, and, and the same applies to data. So I, I think that's what, what vexes me is, to your earlier point, digital should mean more measurability, but for some unintended consequences, it's actually dysfunctional in many ways. Well, so, you know, at the beginning of the program, uh, before you were on, I mentioned that Black Friday yielded $6.2 billion of online sales. Uh, The forecast for what's going to happen today on Cyber Monday is that we're going to be setting all sorts of records and a huge increase over last year. And so we see people shopping online. Is the best way to reach those people that are shopping online not marketing online? Well, you know, we are attacking an interesting set of issues in the Marketing Accountability Standboard. You, you and I talked about modeling value. We just talked about transparency and measurability of the digital supply chain. One of the other shocking things to me is the marketing mix. I mean, I've, you've been teaching marketing a lot longer than I've been around. But, hey, hey, you know, <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> you don't need to age me that much, but okay. But, 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 you know, everybody talks about the marketing mix, but, you know, maybe I'm a, an outsider asking dumb questions. What are the aspects of the marketing mix? If you talk somebody to somebody at Facebook, it's the difference between, you know, uh, social media, search media, and, and digital advertising. Right. Uh, but, as you know, coupons still matter. Direct mail is still a big chunk of the mo- market. Analytics is now 8.5% of it. Technology, according to the Gartner Group, is half of it. You know, traditional media still exists. Billboard still exists. Uh, and now you've got email, websites. So at the end of the day, if you ask 100 people, experts, folks like you and I perhaps, uh, you'll get 100 different answers. And there's no standard investment mix. If you ask your financial advisor to build a stock portfolio, you know, there are standard buckets and, and, and categories, Lipper, and Schwab, they break it into slices. They can build asset allocation model. If you ask a marketer to do the same thing, they can't even agree uh, on the investment classes and categories, which is shocking to me. And so some of the work that we're doing is to try to establish a standardized chart of accounts that says, hey, what counts? Uh, Digital media, traditional media, but does data count as a marketing investment? I mean, does R&D count? Uh, the analytics is supposed to be 8% of the market. Are we including that in our investments? What about the digital infrastructure that, you know, digital transformation, everyone's spending hundreds of millions of dollars. Aren't those marketing investments and the databases that sit underneath them? So we can't even build a consensus around what constitutes marketing investment in this day and age. And to be very specific to your question, David, my calculations, and I have to go to like 20 different sources to come up with this, is that more of the spend falls outside of paid media, meaning we're spending more money on technology. Content is a huge slice of the pie. People who make that content and curate that content, websites, 
uh, analytics, uh, email. Uh, most of the budget is owned or earned, if you would, and not paid media. And that's, I guess, a, a, a phantom legacy investment, which people still think about marketing as just moving media around, when in fact most of the money is in things like content, which we don't really understand how to monetize, uh, and, and technology, which you know is either a panacea or a waste of money. Uh, and certainly, uh, technology is not an expense, it's more of an investment. So it gets very, very complicated just to describe what is what's in, what's in the mix? I mean, you said yourself, uh, you know, product innovation and R and D may be a, a big part of the equation. And and are, are we including product variables when we think about marketing? Yeah, I was, so I was I just going to say you you, world, you mentioned me. you mentioned the marketing mix. I didn't hear anything about product in there, <laughs> and and uh, the spending is that no longer part of the marketing budget? Well, one of the analyses we did is we work with a bunch of executive recruiters and CMOs to say if, in fact, to your point, that it is a variable. Uh, and the big question is, does um, a CMO have control over the product roadmap or pricing strategy? You've made a very, very good point here. And so one of the analysis we did, which says if marketing is actually going to control the impact that marketing investment has on, on the value, do they have even the purview? of that. Do they own the website? Do they right. own the data? And, and and most CMOs do not have control over pricing strategy, nor do they have control over the product mat roadmap. Now, that may be more of a B2B issue than a B2C issue, but they're the ones who have to position and, and brand the thing so that I can get premium pricing, but they don't have any control over the attributes. Uh, they, ha they you know, the, For example, the CMO may actually have the market research that shows the utilities that are going to drive margin, but they don't have the influence to get those utilities baked into a product strategy. Wow. And so you've raised wow. a really interesting point, not just in terms of the investment mix, but the span of control of marketing. And so one of the big thrusts we have uh, is this notion of a team sport. Certainly the CMO can't control everything, but they have to have a voice in product. And one of the big failings is innovation. No, so so that's that's a huge issue. You know, I thought we were making tons of progress in all of this marketing <laughs> accountability stuff, and now you've got me thinking, well, we still have such a hill to climb, so it's amazing, which guarantees you're going to have a job for a while, and I probably am too. So, um, Stephen, I can't believe how fast this time passed. It is amazing um, because I think we could have gone on for for easily several more hours. So I'm going to have to talk to you again and spend some more time with you. Enjoyed having you on the program. Good luck with this because I think you're off on a great endeavor. So really appreciate you joining us today. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.